The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Extinction Rebellion co-founder Roger Hallam. I spoke to Roger about the organisational model of Extinction Rebellion and how it succeeded in mobilising so many people to take part in direct action. We also chatted about the booklet Roger has written on the strategy of XR, which is titled Common Sense for the 21st Century – only nonviolent rebellion can now stop climate breakdown and social collapse. And we also discussed some of the criticism XR has come in for regarding its tactics of mass arrest and a perceived failure to properly engage with communities of colour. You can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud, Blueberry and Spotify. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle, as always, is at Poll Theory Other. And if you enjoy the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. And if you would like to, you can also support the show by donating through Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes, including today's interview. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Roger Hallam has been an organic farmer for 20 years. He's currently doing a PhD on the practicalities of bringing about radical change, with a particular focus on direct action and civil disobedience dynamics. He's done practical fieldwork for more than three years with unions, activists organising rent strikes, the climate change movement, in which he's been involved in prototyping XR's model of mass arrest civil disobedience. It's perhaps worth mentioning that I'm not particularly happy with how I conducted today's interview. Roger's probably the first guest I've had on the show who has quite radically different politics from my own, uh, coming as he does out of a broadly liberal tradition. And listening back to the interview, I felt I could have challenged some of Roger's claims rather more robustly than I did, particularly the assertions he makes on the comparative treatment of people of colour and white people by the police as well as regarding his argument that climate crisis will inevitably lead to an insurrectionist moment. Nonetheless, I still think it's worth listening to as it gives an insight into some of the theory that inspires XR. Um, and of course, XR's position can't necessarily be generalised from the position of just one of its founders. Just on a brief point of fact, there's a moment in the interview where I mentioned that XR published on its website a prison guide for activists risking arrest, which stated that, quote, most prison officers are black and do not wish to give you a hard time. The guidance was subsequently removed from the website after complaints. Roger responds to my question by saying that the guidance was in fact correct. Uh, during the interview, I assumed that Roger was defending the claim regarding the attitude of prison officers rather than the claim that a majority of prison officers are black. But listening back to the interview, it could be construed that Roger is defending both claims. I don't think he probably was, especially since the guidance was later removed, but I think it's worth mentioning that according to the most recent available figures from 2018, 94% of prison officers in England and Wales are white. 
I began the interview by asking Roger to say something on why he thinks XR has been able to mobilise very large numbers of people into doing direct action, which has resulted in the UK Parliament declaring a climate emergency, and what he thinks it is about the organisational structure of XR that has made that possible. Yeah, well, the first thing to say is that um, I, I don't hold to the sort of postmodernists' conceit that whatever your message is, you can make it stick if you do the right thing to your message. I do actually believe, uh, without getting too philosophical, that there is an objective moral reality out there. And if a regime or elite engages in chronically immoral activities, then they will uh, they will elicit a rebellious response. So the short answer to your question is 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 you know given that we are objectively in a climate emergency and it's likely to lead to mass starvation and various other sort of unimaginable sort of levels of suffering in the next generation, then it's no surprise that a social movement comes along that's going to challenge it. So that's like the structural sociological sort of background to it. You can't create a social movement, you know, to get people to wear red hats, you know, however good you are at promoting the message, people generally don't want to wear red hats and so you won't be successful. So that's the first thing to say about it. Uh, Having said that, obviously there are sort of like super structural elements in a social system that can, you know, where people do have a degree of agency to affect things. And as you may know from social movement literature, there is this notion of structural opportunities. So when, you know, a structural opportunity comes along where an elite is proposing the mass suicide of the next generation, then you you do have a structural opportunity to create a social movement. So in so much as like that sort of gives you some agency, What's made uh, Extinction Rebellion successful is a number of, of significant sort of di- design elements which are, are sort of uh, reconnecting with a pre-1989 orientation and, and therefore going against what you might call the sort of consensus of, of social movement building over the past, you know, 30 years since the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the uh, sort of neoliberal paradigm in terms of campaigning i sort of corporate you know based on emails and lobbying and professionalized activism and what have you so what what's what we've done in no particular order is we've basically focused on civil disobedience we've focused on post consensus decision making i initiating enabling people to initiate creative uh, creative actions uh, we've also initiated like going to the people rather than staying in the political bubble, uh, having public meetings. And lastly, obviously, we've been fairly savvy on social media organizing as have other sort of modern social movements like the Sanders campaign and what have you. So I think those are probably the main things. Uh, I suppose one other thing is we have a regenerative culture, which doesn't involve any naming or blaming which usually gets downplayed, but in my view is absolutely central to actually creating a social movement to move beyond the sort of chronically overcritical, radical and hard left sort of orientations that usually sabotage social movements. I would certainly agree on on that point of it not being possible to build a social movement along any trajectory, along any sort of particular aim, but it needs to depend on some particular kind of grievance. I suppose what I'm partly interested in is the the situation regarding climate is obviously particularly dire, but it's been dire for quite a long a long time. What do you think it is about XR that's been able to mobilise such large numbers of people as compared with 
prior forms of climate activism, which, although the situation maybe was not quite as palpably apocalyptic as it is now, was still nonetheless, you know, pretty awful. Yeah, yeah, well... You know, I'm a sort of complexity theorist, so, you know, you can never quite predict when things will actually trigger, if you see what I mean. Obviously, once you've got the structural conditions, then you've got, you're in what you might call the ballpark part of a a social movement taking off. So I think, you know, it's not not one or the other. Obviously, you know, the, the, the climate catastrophe is getting worse exponentially, and it's the exponentiality of it, of course, which is suddenly creating this panic, as you might say. I mean, a trigger point was obviously the October sort of report from the UN saying we've got 10 years, you know, apparently to reduce carbon emissions by 10%, by 50%, which which seems to sort of be the death knell of, 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 of the carbon regime around the world because no regime is going to be able to do that without a massive political transformation. So, you know, that that's the sort of background. So I don't want to sort of knock the previous climate movements too much in so much as you know (laughs) obviously we do have that sort of advantage structurally but having said that like the previous climate movements um yeah there's been a number of sort of structural elements in them that have have led to them not not being that effective and as you know i don't want to repeat myself but probably the number one one is mass participation civil disobedience which is the primary sort of mechanism of mass mobilisation and political effectiveness over the last 100 years, as shown by Erica Chenoweth's research, uh, Why Civil Resistance Works. So not really like saying anything new there, but obviously like for most of the left over the last 30 years, there hasn't been any particular emphasis on, on, on civil disobedience. You know, obviously there's been a direct action tradition where that's been very like, uh, very sort of encultured into the radical left and anarchist left and what have you. And it hasn't really broken out into what you might call mass participation, a bit like the peace movement is in the 1980s. So, and obviously the NGO sector has been pretty allergic to anything, you know, anything approaching sort of mass arrest scenarios. So between the radical left and the NGO left, you know, there's been a big chasm between, there's, you know, there's been a big area which just hasn't been filled. And that's what Extinction Rebellion has done. It's been a sort of challenge to, to the radical left sort of, <coughs> you know, very elitist and uh, judgmental and exclusive morality, you know, Calvinistic approach to politics and and the NGO sort of corporatized uh, approach. So it's, it's a sort of popularist sort of, you know, obviously that's a bit of a tricky word, but you see what I mean. It's like actually getting out and talking to people. So I think it's like a profoundly democratic strategy which is to take people at face value, don't judge them, and encourage them to enact their their, their rights as citizens and as human beings, which is which is to break the law as and when this state <clears throat> engages in, in chronic criminality or immorality, as you could see with the suffragettes or the early trade unionists or, you know, civil rights movements, uh, gay rights and what have you. So it's a continuation of that mass mobilisation tradition. So XR has come in for a fair bit of criticism regarding the diversity of the organisation and also for, for its messaging, which, it's been, which has been argued as, has been quite alienating to communities of colour, particularly with regard to, to the police and to the issue of encouraging people to get arrested. And I mean, it does, it does rather feel that, you know, messaging, uh, saying things like, you know, we love the police and this sort of thing, you know, it does seem that that kind of reflects a pretty serious tone deafness as to how people 
who are much more exposed to police violence or, or stop and search harassment um, than, than say somebody like like you or me, um, you know, how they're going to find those those statements. And I also found myself wondering about environmental activists who were the targets of the of the so-called spy cops, you know, what they would make of those kind of uh, statements. Um, how would you respond to that kind of uh, criticism? Well, the first thing to say is there's obviously like an official line that XR has. And then there are sort of like, you know, it's an open movement. So if someone says they love the police, it doesn't mean like the movement loves the police, if you see what I mean. So it's a little bit ingenuous, as it were, to sort of take what someone says and says that's what the movement's saying. The movement isn't isn't saying that we love the police. Basically, the movement has like a specific strategy uh, towards the police, which is like a tactical thing. It's not a moral thing particularly. Uh, It's a tactical thing. And the tactical... The tactical analysis is based upon like the the most successful nonviolent like uprisings that have happened over the last hundred years, and it, it simply makes the empirical point that if you can neutralise and or subvert the police and the security forces, then you're sixty percent more likely to be successful. Uh, if you want to follow genuine research, and there's a rich and uh, and radical tradition of connecting with the police as fellow uh, fellow sort of uh, similarly oppressed people, as you might say, particularly in the austerity context we're in now, uh, and to make an alliance with them strategically in order to undermine the regime as we see it. But I think the broader issue here is that I think a lot of the criticism is, is originates from an inability to emotionally connect with the actual catastrophe that we're facing. Um, it sort of assumes that extinction rebellion and, and the climate change catastrophe is somehow, you know, has to be colonised by the political. The, the, the climate change catastrophe is not primarily political; it's primarily moral in the set or criminal in the same sense. You know, if someone pushes someone off a cliff, then you know that's it's evidently from whatever political ideology you hold uh, a crime. And it is possible, and unfortunately for people that live in the political world, don't seem to be able to accept this. But it's certainly the case there are things in the social field which are primarily moral rather than political. And I would maintain a certain degree of limits on on the political colonising the moral, as you might say. I guess the view I would probably take is that, you know, one could sort of look at climate catastrophe in in the abstract and say this is going to affect all of us and therefore that sort of expands the range of potential allies you know you can sort of take the view of you know the, the police have, police have got children too but i do still think that the climate crisis like many other crises there is always going to be the question of the degree to which certain sectors of the population will seek to insulate themselves from the crisis and to push the the uh, the worst effects of the crisis onto particular people. And I appreciate what you say about XR isn't in control of what all of its activists do and say, but I mean, there was the case of the online prison guide that was on the XR website suggesting that most prison officers are black and do not wish to, to give you a hard time, I think the quote was. Um, does perhaps suggest that there's something problematic about XR's culture? Well, it's just an empirical fact. I mean, I've been to prison several times, and that's the fact. That's the fact of the matter. I mean, a lot of people that want to like deliberate and make sort of judgments about going to prison or don't hasn't haven't actually been to prison. So, you know, you, you know, it depends. You know, what the problem with the radical left is it like prioritise ideology over empirical like research. 
And this is one of the reasons why it's like phenomenally unsuccessful and, and sabotages the interests of the, the working class and marginalized communities. But, you know, the, 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 the fact of the matter is, is if you want to actually improve the world, you actually have to look at what works, you know, and what the actual situation is. And, you know, that requires sophistication and nuance. You know, obviously, you know, obviously like the police do terrible things and the police don't do terrible things. What, 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 well, the, the issue is, is, is how you specifically going to design a political confrontation. And, and that requires like looking at the specific data in a situation. You know, that's, that's my role. I look at, I look at how we can achieve, you know, major publicity and empowerment for people through a, uh, through a series of confrontations. Uh, and that's, that's all I'm doing. I mean, if, if, if people that criticize me or other people have got a better idea, then feel free. You know, I mean, no one's saying if someone wants to, you know, create a, a climate movement that focuses on how terrible the police are, you know, good luck, maybe it'll be better. But, you know, I just suggest that people have been following a particular routine for the last 30 years and it hasn't worked that well. So Extinction Rebellion isn't trying to be like dogmatic, but it's just saying we're trying something different and we happen to get like, you know, a thousand people arrested and on the front pages of papers and transform the climate debate in, in four months of organising. So presumably not doing every, everything wrong. <laughs> and obviously, like, you know, being criticised is fine, you know, that's we're in a democracy, so that's all good. But that's like, um, um, I'd suggest like it's, it's just a little bit like not really the main issue here. You know, the main issue is everyone's going to die in the next 30 years. And uh, if if you there's a there's a, a rich and radical literature on subverting the security forces, uh, mainly from the global south by by people of colour, you know, such as India and the Philippines and Burma and you know what have you. And if you look at the speeches of you know Martin Luther King or like mid twentieth century left like Labour leaders, they're all like basically appealing to universal values. And arguably, like the identity politics of the last 30 years has been very good at furthering the rights of minorities, and it's all well and good. Uh, but it's, it would be like, it'd be, it would be wrong to, to, to deny, I think. So it also has significant drawbacks, which is they can't appeal to everyone. And in so much as everyone's going to die, then there's certainly a role for a universalistic sort of messaging. And that's all that Extinction Rebellion is doing. It's not like trying to be exclusive. Obviously, people in the global south are suffering a lot more. But people in the global south aren't going to be benefited by a strategy that basically is ineffective and in actually converting the global north. And, and so there's nothing intrinsically radical about identity politics framing. You know, it's a strategy. It might be right, it might be wrong, and it's got its drawbacks. But the notion like a universalistic strategy is somehow like reactionary is nonsense. You know, historically, it was like the main framing. And, you know, the main socialist movements in the 20th century succeeded on a universalistic framing. Uh, you just need to look at the speeches of, of the main actors during that period. So, you know, that's yeah, what I'm I mean, saying. I'm, I'm not suggesting that, you know, the strategy should be particularly to, to, to demonise the police per se, but, uh, but the one should take a more hard-headed view of, of, of what the police are and what the police's social role is in our society. And I think if one is from a particular background, say a, a more affluent white background, it is, I think, easier to see the police rather as if they're um, the equivalent of firefighters, you know, that their role is just to chase criminals and, and secure order. But they, they clearly play play a different role. And if, you know, if you're seeking to 
ensure that Extinction Rebellion is, is open to as, as broad a public as, as possible, then I mean, it seems to not recognise the different experience that uh, communities of colour have regarding the police. It seems a little bit short-sighted to me. You know, with all due respect, I think you're just empirically wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, um, but the, the evidence is quite the contrary. You know, the, if you want to create a mass movement, then you want to have an approach to the police which is generally, like, constructive rather than critical. Uh, and uh, that isn't to say that you're not acknowledging the experience of a lot of people of colour and what have you. But, you know, it's a matter of nuance, isn't it? It's You're not living in Egypt, you know. Um, and, you know, I've had, like, 10, 20 meetings with the police over the last two years. I've got a lot of evidence about how the police work in the context of a non-violent Gandrian sort of uh, a civil disobedience campaign. And there's strong evidence to show that, that people of colour will be treated effectively the same as people who've got white colour. Now, I'm only talking about that particular micro contact, if you see what I mean. But it's important, you see, to have this sophistication rather than to come with a sort of ideological viewpoint, which obviously has got empirical support as well, but it isn't really like sophisticated enough to look at the particular context in which we're, we're designing a confrontation. So, um, uh, and also I think like there's something intrinsically elitist and patronising about saying that people of colour can't actually engage in Gandhian civil disobedience, seeing as that methodology was actually like created in situations which were a lot more oppressive than London in uh, 1990s. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that's the claim. I think the claim is that um, there are differing costs depending on your social position. Yeah, yeah, but you need to have nuance about what that cost involves, right? I mean, I'm, I'm going around like communities in London, you know, who are practical, practical activists and communities, uh, community activists, and they're extremely enthusiastic about what XR has done. And do want to translate that methodology to uh, communities which have a high level of migrants. And um, my hypothesis that I'm suggesting to them is that they, if they engage in similar civil disobedience campaigns, then the likelihood of extreme repression will actually be quite low. Well, of course, the, the irony of, the, of, of classical civil, you know, nonviolence theory is that in so much as you maintain maintain uh, a non-violent response, then the backfiring effect will actually lead to, to campaign success. So let's turn to the, to the booklet that you've written. You situate XR in, in opposition to reformist movements and political parties in order to, to achieve the goals that XR have set out, including total decarbonisation by 2025. Um, you call in the booklet for the, the overthrow of the government and in order to achieve that, you, you call for the mass uh, civil disobedience that we've been we've been talking about. Um, so, in that, you you draw on a number of historical examples of mass civil disobedience that have either led to significant government concessions or or even the overthrow of governments, um, such as the civil rights struggle in the United States, um, the Arab Spring, and also the dissolution of East Germany. So, I mean, in terms of that sort of maximalist aim of, of, of government overthrow, and uh, I appreciate you've got a sort of secondary aim of, of sort of affecting massive reform by coming close to, to that kind of full-scale victory. But in terms of, the of, of overthrowing a government, the examples you draw on, of course, aren't examples of Western democratic governments being overthrown for the very good reason that we don't have examples of, of that to draw on. But I do sort of wonder about the, the relevance and applicability of situations such as uh, Mubarak's Egypt or Hanukkah's East Germany to, to that of the UK in 2019. 
you know, in those situations, we're talking about uh, police states with with pretty minimal popular consent for the mode of government, uh, a much sort of thinner civil society, and um, a very uh, you know fairly open dependence on the threat of coercion to maintain those regimes, uh, a media system that's far more overtly propagandistic than our own. Um, do you think that those examples are, are are really that relevant to to our situation in the UK? Well, of course. What we need to understand is history never totally repeats itself, right? So these are, you know, we need a middle way here. We're not determined by the past, but we're, we're, we can learn from the past, right? So that's what I'm suggesting. So I'm suggesting that what's happened in the past will be a partial guide to the future. But in terms of having like a revolutionary episode in a modern Western democracy in the next 10 years, yeah, I think that's absolutely inevitable. But it's obviously going to take a form that hasn't actually you know, it, which isn't identical to either the Arab Spring or 1989 for the obvious reasons that you've just uh, outlined. But that doesn't mean to say that the revolutionary episode in itself is is impossible in a Western democracy in the next 10 years. And so, again, there's like two elements to it. There's a sort of structural sociological element, which is, you know, deterministic. And then there's a degree of agency in terms of whether it becomes pear-shaped or not, as you might say. So taking those one at a time, the 70% sort of point of, of, of the booklet is to just make the sort of like no-brainer point that the, 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 the carbon, you know, carbon fossil fuel regimes of the world are going to collapse in the next 10 years because they simply count, count, uh, don't have the political will or, or the organizational capacity to cut carbon emissions by 50% in 10 years. I mean, obviously, it's not absolutely impossible. But what, what I mean, what I'm saying there is basically a deterministic element in it. So if you look at the sociology of revolution, the basic point is the structural elements that usually get exponentially worse, which basically enable you to predict the collapse of a regime. And usually is a financial, of course, and as you probably know, you know, from financial analysis, like once you get into a fiscal sort of downward spiral, a state basically is leading to you know, a food crisis, which then triggers a revolution, as you found in France and China and, and Russia, which are the, you know, classical revolutionary contexts. So what, what, we're, what we're heading for here, of course, is like, you know, climatic disaster. So this is like baked in now, in so much as you're aware of the science, you know, you've got the carbon lag, you've got uh, global dimming, you know, you've got the um, latent heat effect in the Arctic. So the basic physics is a little bit like the finances, you know, like 2007, if you've seen like, um, you know, the big short. Basically, the people that could do the maths worked out two or three years before and there was going to be a housing bubble. And that was like structurally determined by, you know, the sort of Minsky sort of dynamics, which, you know, you should be aware of, I guess. But the same thing is with the physics, you know, there's absolutely no question that the Arctic is going to melt now in the summer in the next three or four years, you know, maybe seven years or maybe this year, but, you know, the, the main scenario is the next three or four years. So once that happens, the latent heat effect is going to create a mass, you know, a very rapid in two or three years, it's going to create a rapid deterioration of the climate. And that's going to lead to to uh, a global food crisis. So, so this is coming whether we like it or not. And obviously, you know, as you've seen by something like 9/11, as soon as there's a mass mortality event in a Western democratic country, then you are going to all hell's going to break loose because people just aren't used to it. Uh, and and so that prepares the ground for the revolutionary episode that's going to happen, which obviously could be from the left or the right. 
And that's where the, the agency element comes in. But I mean, I would suggest this is the big contribution of the booklet is that it's basically bringing the physical into the political. And the political is not, of course, ready to accept the physical because it's been able to ignore the physical for the last two centuries in so much as hasn't been a major famine in the Western, you know, Western country since whenever, you know, the Irish famine in the 1840s or whatever. So the notion of a famine happening in a Western democratic country is like, you know, most people in the political sphere are, are actually it's actually psychologically impossible for them to actually understand this is going to happen, which is why, you know, there's no sort of major panic going on. But the, but the point of Extinction Rebellion and of the booklet that I wrote is that that's irrelevant, you know. You know, physics trumps politics and always has and always will. So I'm just preparing the ground for those people who are actually do want to design a progressive revolution, uh, given that one's inevitably coming. And I would suggest with all due respect that people in the political sphere are not going to leave that because they're psychologically unable to, to actually emotionally, you know, cope with the idea. I mean, obviously, there's a few outliers, maybe you. <laughs> but uh, most, people, most people I talk to have got are completely clueless because they haven't got it in their experience. I mean, I'm an organic farmer, so I deal with like life and death all the time, like a lot of farmers. So I'm like more encultured into the notion that mass death can happen at any point. You know, because I sort of understand how food production works, you know, I sort of deal with it. But for most people, most urban middle class people, particularly on the left, they have no conception that nature could possibly hurt them in any visceral sense, you know. So this is, you know, the tragedy of, of where we're at. So, you know, that's a structural situation. I mean, in, in terms of that sort of rejection of the political, in the booklet, you do point to, to the rise of the new left. You know, you, you, you mentioned the Sanders movement and, and Corbyn in the UK. And I mean, it just strikes me as, as a somewhat surprising moment to sort of re- re- reject the political, you know, sort of too core, so to speak, when we do see this insurgency within the, within the Labour Party. And although, you know, I don't think the Labour Party is where it should be on climate, it's clear that they are sort of more open to a radical message on, on the environment than, than the Conservatives are. And there's clearly a lot of people in and around organisations like Momentum, which are profoundly sympathetic to Extinction Rebellion. And so it makes me wonder whether this is quite the moment to be calling for, sim- for simply the ab- abandonment of party politics, um, although that, that's perhaps uh, caricaturing slightly. Well, <clears throat> you know, as I've tried to communicate, like my main orientation is not really political. It's more like sociological and structural. So, so that, that's, that's the starting point. So, you know, on the basis of, of that literature, it's simply impossible for the main social sort of the main social institutions of a society to be able to adapt quickly to rapid change. Uh, and, and, and particularly any institution like the Labour Party is simply not going to be able to cope. And the, obviously we've got various postmodernist routines whereby people say there's a climate emergency, but like that's completely irrelevant to the structural challenge that these, that our society faces. So what, what we're looking at here is complete collapse of the political class's credibility. And, you know, maybe there's a sort of an analogy with Italy in the 1990s, where the whole political class was evidently corrupt and, you know, and it collapsed and new political parties emerged. So I think that's like a no-brainer, really, that, that the political class is, 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 is heading for like extinction <laughs> in terms of credibility. Uh, again, because the political class has no understanding of, of the democratic response to a mass mortality event. 
I mean, as I said, the only thing we've got in our living memory is 9-11, which completely transformed the political agenda, as I'm sure you're aware. So, you know, when, you know, when 50,000 people die in Louisiana or a million people die in Karachi, then the penny will drop and there'll be hundreds of thousands of people on the street. And the political class will, you know, at best be made redundant and will at worst will be in prison. Because the, the you know, we're, we're dealing with the massive, most biggest scandal in history of humanity that for 30 years, the political class has completely ignored the science. Uh, and the science is saying we're heading for a, towards an extinction event. Uh, you see what I mean? So it's, it's terribly difficult for people like you and to understand this, you know, because I think as, as, as your phrases imply, it's like, I think you, you assume like, like, Climate change is a position. It's not a position, it's a fact. Do you see what I mean? It's something that's coming, whether we like it or not. So, Well, no, I don't, I don't dispute that at all. Well, I'm sure you don't, but that doesn't mean you can emotionally relate to it. Do you see what I mean? I mean I'm not trying to give you a hard time. Well, maybe, uh, but. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's a bit tricky when you get into the, into the situation of questioning people's emotional re- relationship with, with climate. I mean, imagine well, it's hard, I, hard for you to know to what my emotional well, relationship be is. Because we're all, we're all emotionally repressed on it. I mean, you know, it's, 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 but, but, but that's basically my analysis on it is that, is one of the reasons why Extinction Rebellion has been successful. First of all, it's given people emotional space to mourn, which has always been a taboo in a sort of, you know, very male repressed sort of political space for people to actually, you know, show any emotions about the suffering that's coming. Um, but the second thing is that, is that once you are emotionally aware of what's coming, then it becomes a no-brainer to break the law. In, in so much as you would if, you know, a 9-11 event had just happened, as you might say. So so the, the reason why the political class is sort of like not quite sure what to do about all this is because it's because extinction rebellion is coming from outside the political sphere. You know, it's mainly people that haven't been involved in politics. You know, it's mainly from the Celtic fringe. You know, it's mainly people that are, are morally mobilised. So... It's very difficult for people in the political class to sort of understand what's happening and, and what will happen in October, which will probably be the collapse, collapse of the political system. But, um, you know, that's, I'm just, a, I'm, just a, I'm just a sort of humble social researcher, <laughs> you know, and I just study this stuff. So, you know, what can I say? I don't expect to be believed, you know, any more than, you know, like in, like in the big short, you know, there was that guy, you know, he studied, he studied the mathematics of the collapse of the housing market and he spent six months on it and then spent two years playing golf in his office. And everyone came into his office saying, you know, it's a complete nutter. But obviously, like maths, you know, trumps, you know, social myopia, as it were. And that's what I'm saying is, that's what that booklet's saying is, it's just a, it's a no-brainer, the system's going to collapse. Um, and I'm just like trying to construct a progressive outcome to that collapse by absolutely no expectation that people in the political sphere are going to be able to accept that for the reasons of, you know, psychological herding, as you might say. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.